Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son Jesus Christ told us that anyone who has ears should hear, and yet we are often so so deaf and blind to your many graces and many mercies in our lives. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes and our ears um, to see the kindness, the generosity, the, the grace with which you deal with us. And in seeing it and hearing it, you would transform us and you'd fill us with joy in our obedience. That we would not begrudgingly obey you or follow you, but we would do it with great fervor and with great joy. I pray you'd begin that work now. You'd begin to open our eyes and our ears now. We would see Jesus, the grace that comes to us in him, and we would be changed. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this is now the second Sunday of the liturgical season of Epiphany, the season in which we Gentiles discover Jesus the King. Or to put it perhaps a bit more personally, we discover Jesus our King. For it turns out, as the wise men discovered in Bethlehem, that Jesus came for all of humanity and not just for the Jews. The entire world belongs to him. And he now reigns over us from his exalted position in the heavens, beyond the influence of all earthly powers and authority, beyond the reach of death even. He is the supreme and eternal king. And during Epiphany, we are getting to know him better because we live in his kingdom now. And it's our duty to serve him with joy. We're getting to know him better by spending our time in Matthew 13, a chapter that is full of stories that Jesus tells about his kingdom. And in each of them, he compares or likens his kingdom to something that teaches us about the nature of his kingdom. Last week, he likened his kingdom to a sower and various types of soil. And this week, he continues with the farming imagery and likens his kingdom to a field in which a farmer sowed good seed. But when the seed began to grow up, it became apparent that mixed in with the wheat were many weeds. And this was distressing to the hired hands who most likely planted the crop. And so they approached the farmer demanding an explanation and requesting advice for next steps. And it's in this dialogue between farmer and hired hands that we will spend our time searching for Jesus' meaning in telling this story. But we cannot begin that inquiry pretending that Jesus didn't already provide us with a key to understanding his meaning. And this key with its matching of, of symbol and meaning comes to us in the latter half of the passage in verses 36 through 43. And there we learn that Jesus isn't talking about a literal field, but about the world. He's also not talking about literal seeds, but about the saints. Neither is he talking about literal weeds, but about the work of the devil in corrupting God's wor- good world and deceiving humanity with lies about God and about themselves so that they think properly neither about God nor about themselves. This story is therefore a familiar one to us. It describes our daily experience, 
God created a good world, a perfect world. And yet the world we know, the world we experience day in and day out is far from perfect. It's full of sin and sickness. It's full of poverty and perversion. It's full of impurity and injustice. It's full of weeds, you might say. And so we often find ourselves coming to God in prayer, asking the very thing of Jesus that the hired hands ask of the farmer in Jesus' story. We look around in distress at the world around us and we ask, what happened? We wonder aloud to him, what should we do? This is why we're going to spend our time examining the dialogue between farmer and hired hand because this is the conversation we have with Jesus on a regular basis. And in the farmer's response, we will find answers to our own as well. Returning therefore to the first half of the story, it's almost as though we are looking into a mirror as we read about the first impulse of the hired hands upon discovery of the weeds in the farmer's field. They approach the farmer in verse 27 and insinuate that the presence of the weeds must somehow be his fault. Did you not sow good seed in your field? They ask him in feigned innocence. How then does it have weeds? It is after all your field. You planted it, did you not? How then did it become full of weeds? And before we get to the farmer's response to this insinuation, it's worth pointing out the grace that is inherent in the fact that Jesus, who is telling this story, puts this question in the mouths of the hired hands. It's a grace that they ask this question because it shows that Jesus understands the corruption of our hearts. He understands that we experience pain or frustration or hardship in the world and our first instinct is to blame God. And this is significant because it means that his love for us is not naive. He knows the depths of our depravity. He knows the sins we commit and are capable of committing and yet he loves us the same. He desires us the same. We would blame him and yet he loves us. His is not a naive love. He knows full well who he has chosen to love. We accuse God of being at fault for the corruption of the world he has made. But as the farmer tells his hired hands, an enemy has done this. God's not at fault. An enemy, the devil, has done this. And it's consistent with his character as it's developed throughout the rest of the biblical witness. As one scholar writes, to depict Satan as a spiteful enemy trying to spoil the good work of the landowner and ruin his harvest expresses graphically his status in biblical literature. He's a spoiler, not a constructive authority in his own right. The corruption of creation, the hatred in the human heart, the confusion of our minds has the fingerprints of the devil all over it. Unable to create on his own, he finds pleasure in attacking the one who can by spoiling his creation. The actions of the devil are motivated by envy. He wishes he could be God. He is jealous of God and bitter about his own weak position. And so he harms you. You are his way of getting at God. And if he can grieve God by first afflicting you, 
but then making your first thought that God is to blame, then that is a double win. What a joy that is to him. He is our real enemy. And let us never forget this and and point our finger in the wrong direction. And while we are pointing fingers, though, Jesus does seem to insinuate that there's at least one other place where we might rightfully lay blame. The story Jesus tells does not attempt to explain all the details of how the devil has, uh, has been allowed to gain access to God's world in the first place. But it does suggest that if we're seeking to assign blame, then we must be ready to assume some ourselves. The story explains in verse 2 that it was while the farmer's men were sleeping that the enemy snuck in and sowed the weeds. If they had remained diligent and alert, then perhaps the enemy would never have gained a foothold in this world. But we fell asleep and we left the door ajar and let down our guard. And in our hearts, the enemy planted the most insidious and deceitful lie. God does not love you. Uh, He does not desire what's best for you. In fact, he's trying to keep you down with all of his rules and regulations and restrictions. Because he's actually afraid of you, you see. And he's afraid of what you might become. Really, he's quite selfish. And it was in believing this lie, which we still repeat to ourselves today, that the devil gained entrance to our hearts and we began to sin as we vainly pursued the impossible. A life of happiness and meaning apart from God. Our folly overflowed into the entire world so that nothing was left untouched by our self-imposed misery. You see, we collaborate quite well with the devil, actually. And so God must save us not just from him, but from ourselves as well. The world is not as God has made it to be. But that's not his fault. An enemy has done this. But can't he do something about it? After the hired hands received their explanation for the origin of the weeds, they immediately turned to this question. What can be done? In verse 28, they eagerly ask, then do you want us to gather them now? Why delay a minute longer? Why tolerate this corruption to persist? Why not intervene now? But the farmer preaches patience. Let them both grow up together and at the harvest will separate them. The hired hands rush the farmer as we rush God. But it's because we fail to comprehend at the most fundamental level just how profoundly God is committed to the integrity of the world as he created it. He will indeed interrupt the laws of nature from time to time with the performance of a miracle, but his normal course of operation is through ordinary means embedded within the course of history. He respects time. And he uses it as an instrument of his grace. He harbors none of the antagonism that we have towards the ever-rolling stream of time. See, at times it moves too fast for us and we wish we had more of it. At other times it crawls by and we become bored. But time is a friend for the God who created it. And he has no intention of rushing. Neither should we try too hard to rush him. Because it turns out that his delay is for the good of the saints. The reason the farmer gives for waiting until the harvest to pull out the weeds is that the root systems of the weeds and the wheat are too entangled. 
In attempting to pull out the weeds, you may unknowingly and unintentionally uproot the wheat as well. See, his concern is for, and the reason for his delay is for the wheat. He delays so that the wheat might grow and have the opportunity to fully distinguish itself from the weeds. Scholars agree that the weed Jesus is talking about here is, is most likely darnel, which is at first growth indistinguishable from wheat. And it isn't until the wheat and the darnel are almost fully grown that one can really tell the difference between the two. The delay, therefore, provides the opportunity for the wheat to prove itself wheat and for the darnel to show itself a weed. The delay in Jesus' return, the delay in judgment, is therefore for your sake, for the sake of the saints and for your children and for your children's children. He's waiting so that you have opportunity to repent and to prove yourself wheat worthy of the kingdom. He is waiting so that your children might have the opportunity to mature in their faith and testify that they used to believe because you told them to do so. But now they believe out of true conviction and true love. He is waiting so that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, yet unborn, might come to him. He is waiting so that your neighbor living next door to you in total ignorance of the love that Jesus has for her might yet come to know him and to live in his love forever. The delay, therefore, is grace. And it means opportunity. Everyone thought that when God came to earth, it would be in judgment. But God came to earth and he came full of grace. Jesus Christ came offering grace and forgiveness to everyone who followed him in faith. He did all things for us. He was obedient for us and he died our death so that through faith in him, we might be forgiven and made perfect through his grace. His coming in grace, therefore, delayed judgment until some time in the future so that you and I and a thousand others in this city might offer ourselves to him in true faith and in the hope that he will save us from the devil and from ourselves and spare us the wrath of God that we deserved for collaborating with the devil and corrupting God's creation. You see, we live in an extended period of grace which means there is opportunity for you to show God just how much you love him. And you do this by being serious about your pursuit of Jesus. You set him at the center of your life so that everything else about you becomes secondary. And then you ask Jesus to inform the secondary, to inform and influence your life, to teach you how to live. And where he demands purity, you repent from your sin. And where he demands sacrifice, you give of yourself and your time. And you do this in the company of the saints, the church. Yes, a a Christian can be one on their own, but a tree can also grow out of a crack in a rock. And you would never bet on the future of that tree over a tree planted by streams of water. So you reorient your life around Jesus And you seek to live in the community of the saints and in conformity with the high calling of the righteousness and holiness that he has placed on you after saving you from yourself and the influence of the devil 
who desires only your corruption and failure. This delay means opportunity for you, for your neighbor, for your children and your children's children. As the author of Hebrews writes, as long as it is today, there is still time to enter into his rest. And there is opportunity for the many people God is in secret drawing to himself in this city. They are there and it's called today still. There is still time to enter his rest. But do you care about them enough to make the grace of Jesus Christ known to them, to seek them out, to find out where they are, to go and eat with them? Remember, he is the one that tills the soil and you have only to cast the seed of the gospel and wait with expectation. So let us not waste this dispensation of grace in which we now live because make no mistake, Jesus will come in judgment still. He cannot stand to see the corruption of his creation. And eventually his patience with the weeds will run dry. In the end, he will remove the weeds in judgment and he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The earth will be made new and glorious as he designed it to be from the beginning. The devil himself will be defeated forever. And the lies of the devil will find no fertile soil in our hearts any longer. For we will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he loves us and desires our good. We will know that apart from him we are nothing. And we will rest in our sense of dependence. We will be happy. And every moment of every day we will praise him for waiting for us. So that we might experience his glory and the glory of the world he created for us to enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.